afternoon, universe, and welcome to another episode of Cross Defense, your Monday afternoon worldview demolition, breaking down the stronghold, bad opinions of the enemy, and set up shop with the mighty fortress of our Lord's Word. We're back in the saddle after a couple of weeks, speaking for the sake of the Reformation, that 500th anniversary that we just celebrated, a couple encore episodes. We're back live with you this Monday, 11-6-17, with guests on the line, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller and Pastor Adam Filipek to dig back into a little more of Peeper's Christian dogmatics. Why? Why would we be doing that? Because we believe this. We believe that Christianity isn't just a bunch of feelings. It, it, it will affect your feelings. It can improve your feelings. Even it can help you find hope in the midst of darkness. But it's not about your feelings. Christianity is the belief that God God speaks. God speaks and he has spoken in such a way and with such truth and with such reality that what we hear we can actually speak it back. And therefore, we have this thing we call doctrine, this thing we call dogma, this thing we call truth. And we listen to St. Paul when he tells us to hunger for the truth, to watch your life and doctrine closely, and to beware that the time is coming. And people will not put up with sound truth, with sound doctrine, but in order to suit their own desires, they're going to gather around them teachers to teach what their itchy ears would rather hear. But you, Christian, you are challenged, you are called, you are privileged, and you are blessed to cling to the trustworthy doctrine as it has been taught and even so encourage others. Again, to help us look at it at this this morning from Francis Pieper's Christian Dogmatics, we have on the line Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. He's senior pastor at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora. Colorado, also author of the book Has American Christianity Failed from Concordia Publishing House and Pastor Adam Filipek, he's pastor at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Lidgeworth, North Dakota uh, and uh, have you written any books, Pastor Filipek, yet? Are you on the way to doing that yet? Written any books? I'm working on I'm working on one, Jonathan. Are you really? What are you working on? Life in Christ. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of an overview of the Christian faith and the life of Jesus, Old and New Testament, and how our life fits into that both on Sunday morning in the divine service and how we live that out then in our vocations. So it's sort of an overview. Awesome. Awesome. How far are you into, into working on that? It's been a kind of a uh, pet project or are you like, are you getting close to the end of it? No, it's, it's a pet project because I'm also simultaneously working on a similar thing for my doctoral thesis right now. Oh, there you so. go. Yeah. There's nothing like writing a doctoral thesis and a book and, and then being a pastor all at the same time. Nothing, nothing quite right. like that. Pastor Wolf Miller, uh, are you there with us? I'm here. Excellent. Good. And, uh, I don't know, are you doing a follow up for has American Christianity failed or have you just given up on this writing thing? You did it once and bucket <laughs> list is done. No, no, I got it. five or six books. They're all in stages of thinking of the titles. So, yeah, yeah, that's right. All you need is a title on about 10 pages. That's all anybody reads anyways. <laughs> that's, that's, that's right. That's, that's what all I, I hear. So, well, speaking of books that we go more than 10 pages in, we're, we're jumping back into Francis Pieper. And it's been a little while since the listeners have been in is something new here. We're picking up at about page 54. But by way of recap, we're in this section, which is titled Theology as Doctrine, which might, you might, kind of want to hear that as what is the reason we even are doing this as a show uh, as cross defense the idea that the knowledge of god is objective there, there is a subjective experience of it there are there are even requirements that we can place on a pastor that he would have certain levels of that experience the habit of pastoral theology and all that kind of stuff which we looked at before but when it comes down to it the real essential matter is is a truth that does not change. And and where we get that truth, that's sort of what we're going to be talking about today with uh, with Scripture and whatnot. But this idea that, that there is doctrine, it's almost a revolutionary idea to a big part of the Christian world today. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, most of the American Christianity is a is a theologyless or a doctrineless uh, place. In fact, uh, when, when most people hear the word doctrine, they it it like dries up their imagination. It's like they put their imagination in the in the dryer, and it's just come to you know it's crumbling now. There's <laughs> no life in it at all. They hear doctrine, and they they're kind of their tongue rolls over and their eyes roll. But doctrine is nothing other than the words of Jesus, and that's the. That's the uh, thing, the point that uh, Francis Pieper is making here, that, that, that doctrine is God's word. And, and if God is going to speak, then we as his creatures uh, and as the objects of his redemption probably should pay attention to that and give it the due, the honor and the glory and the life. Let it have the life that it intends for us. And if that were too little for the world, more offense is given. And that is simply this, that that doctrine is objective. There's an objective reality to this doctrine, an objective truth. Whether you recognize it, whether you believe it or not, there is one truth, absolute, that governs everything. And it's solely grounded upon Christ and Christ alone, as recorded for us in the written scriptures and as spoken to us in the oral proclamations of old. That flies in the face of the way that this world tends to understand truth. Usually, this world dwell, del delves into and dwells in what we call relative truth, truth as related to me, how I process things, how I understand it, what feels good, what feels right for me. But Pieper comes along and says, no, there's, there's no actual subjectivity that can fully be grasped in truth. It always finds its expression in the larger objective. So there's a truth that governs everyone. Whether we like it or not, whether we recognize it or not, it's there. And his name is Jesus Christ. Yeah, amen, amen. I think it's a stunning thing to pick up on that word imagination. How we've come to believe, though, that this objective truth, this non-changing truth, this reality of God become man dead and hanging on a cross, but then raised three days later for the forgiveness of the sins and the life of the entire world, how this is something that we find boring. Or, or that the, 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 the word is, you know, again, the doctrine is a word that there's a truth that never changes that we can stand on. It's like a, a rock you build a house on that we would find this distracting or dull. And, and sometimes, uh, you know, I've, I, there's certain words that kind of work this way too. A catechism. Like you want to turn people off in a Bible study and have them never listen to you. Just say the word catechism. They'll be gone. They're done. They're checked out, right? Justification kind of works the same way. What is it about our, our context that has made us so stale that we think that the the vine connecting himself to the branches or the good shepherd caring for his sheep and shouting with his voice that this is this is not something we want to hear anymore i mean i just maybe we shouldn't go too far down that rabbit trail but i find it stunning how have we lost our imaginations when it comes to doctrine i'm not talking about making stuff up i'm talking about being inspired by what we believe teach and confess yeah there's something to this that um and I, and and I don't know much more than this, but I think this is really worth looking into. And that is that one of the ways that the devil uh, tempts us is through boredom. You know, the the ancient church was onto this, and they had the idea of acadia or acadia, uh, uh, sloth is what we call it, but it, it's tuper, it's indifference, it's kind of this the the flattening of the conscience. It's like it's like your taste buds when you have a cold. You know, I mean, you, you just can't. Uh, you can't taste the the things that are good don't taste good the things that are bad you can't taste at all and and our our own imagination has has we've gotten a cold we we've become hardened to the things that are truly good and truly uh, uh, true and truly beautiful 
we we we've 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 lost the the color of it. It's like our eyes, our our theological imagination has cataracts on it, and so we can't see in full color the the blood of Jesus running out of the uh, arms uh, that are crucified for us. We 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 miss that, and and I I just reckon I mean it's, I, I recognize the the fingerprints of the devil on this in that he tempts us to be bored with the things that are the most wonderful things in the world and then he tempts us to be excited with the most mundane and stupid things you know we could spend we could spend five hours watching videos of people playing minecraft on youtube you know this is just complete mindlessness well, I'll, I'll pick on my favorite sport i mean it's like if, if you spend your entire life you can get really good at taking this orange ball and making it go through that hole you know and, and i love it i love basketball but you're right it's what is that at the end of the day? I mean, what is this, and and how is this more exciting uh, than what Scripture has to say? And then, and to bring it to Peeper here, and I want to throw it toward your direction, Philippeck, but to bring it to Peeper here, like there is something about the way in which doctrine was done in the Enlightenment age, the the the, the categorization scientific approach, which seems to have divorced us from the story a little bit, and maybe in so doing is is where we I don't know we overcodified things, but. I, I say that as I'm I'm insisting, let's read through Dr. Pieper because his codification, frankly, has more imagination than, than most of the stuff that pretends to be a narrative these days. So so I, maybe I'm wrong in saying that, but there's something about remembering the story that's, that I think is a key to getting that imagination back. Maybe I'm off base there. What are your thoughts, Philippic? I don't think you're off base. This is actually where predominantly my doctoral thesis and, and my book sort of argue for and and uh, dwell in. Actually, the Enlightenment, which actually goes, goes back to a controversy that started uh, way back in the Antiochian school and things like that, in early church-wise. But the Enlightenment and the emphasis on human reason, which imagination and the devil fit greatly into, because at the end of the day, it all boils down to one thing. It all boils down to idolatry, as recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3, when we thought what we would understand with good and evil, what could come out of us, being equal to God, was the best thing. Rather than understanding that He is the Creator and we are the creation, we supplanted, in a way, the objective truth and altogether in one very big sense, the word lost that. So in one sense, it boils down to idolatry, but this idolatry expressed throughout the centuries does find great place in the Enlightenment with its overemphasis on rationalistic things and reason. Those aren't bad things, they're gifts of God, but they are subservient to the Word of God. They have a place under the Word of God, not over and above the Word of God. So the tenets of, of the, the rationalistic parting out of things uh, putting up stories into little doctrines, 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 everything becomes little compartmentalizations of things, rather than seeing everything fitting into the larger story, actually comes to us, I would argue, um, years down the road in America, in the giving in uh, and the development of the, the way that we educate people. Hmm. Um, John Dewey, uh, the progressive education system, things like that, you're going to find tenets of that in there. Brian, you got a response to that? Well, I mean, I think you're onto something, but I, I also think that there's a, you know, that this, that's kind of a scholastic and rationalistic way of doing theology uh, would tempt us to boredom. But I, I think there's another way in which these guys, you know, we 
the uh, the more uh, mat- mature someone becomes theologically, I mean, compare it to someone who you know is a really good like sommelier who drinks a lot of wine and knows the difference between the good stuff and the bad stuff. I mean, I don't I don't have any idea. I mean, I could barely tell if it's wet uh, <laughs> when I drink the wine. But when someone who really knows what they're doing, they they taste something and you you would totally miss it. But they see all the subtleties and all the joy of it and this sort of thing. I think that what we see in Peeper and this. And this this golden age of uh, orthodoxy that he's tapping into in the Lutheran Church is a is a joy in the great subtleties of doctrine, and I think that's something we should re- we should be working towards uh, to be able to rejoice in those sorts of things. But the problem is we're not there yet, you know. So you gotta you gotta sweeten up uh, you gotta sweeten up the wine a little bit so that the you know the young kids uh, will, will well maybe not the young kids you know the young adults. <laughs> So yeah. that the young adults can like it so, uh, and and can start into it. This is how uh, it is with theology. But the goal is that we could. I mean, you you just put one word of the scripture in front of in front of our uh, our, our greatest teacher, Doctor Luther. Just one word, and his 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 mind and his reason and his imagination. And I imagine his whole body just explodes with joy and wonder at that particular word. And uh, and it's not a matter of t- of tediousness uh, for the for these guys. It's a matter of of savoring uh, of savoring the sound of the voice of Jesus in every word of the Scripture. I think I think you're definitely onto something there as well. And, and but I I really think I'm between you guys in this because I I lean a little bit with Philippic on this that there is a certain way in which the Enlightenment structure endangers the, that. <laughs> discovering the the thing you're talking about that's buried in that single word of scripture. And yet, I guess you can find a good well-aged wine and you can find a bad well-aged wine, right? And so, I mean, the reason why we're looking at Dr. Pieper is because Regardless of the structure, the quality of what he's put together for us is is beyond gold. It is it is just phenomenal work, and yet some of what the the world that we inherited from him in the way we do theology, or maybe the way trying to do theology as if ordering things in the structure that people ordered them, therefore we get it right and we know God. See, that's the kind of replacing the substance with the structure, right? And what we want to do is go to Dr. Pieper and find the substance. And we want to go to Dr. Luther and find the substance. We want to be able to preach the substance of the matter today from the scriptures as well in a manner in which it it is heard or even which we ourselves we ourselves hear it. So, you know, I really enjoy this conversation, guys. I don't know how much it's about what we're supposed to actually be talking about. But but <laughs> to, to take us to the text a little bit here. So he, where is Pieper trying to draw us? It's where we're all trying to go here as well. He wants us to go back to the scriptures as something which is objectively true, something which does not change. And, and he's basically holding our feet to this as a, a bit of an accusation to his age and really to our age as well. So we're picking up at page 54 of volume one of his Christian Dogmatics, at the bi- first full paragraph. So it's near the bottom of the page. It says, Holy Scripture holds him to such teaching. This is like anybody who would teach Christianity has to be held to this. Holy Scripture makes the absolute demand that the doctrine taught in the church be doctrina divina, that is God's doctrine, right? The Holy Scriptures of the Old and the New Testament are full of warnings against those teachers who will not confine themselves to teaching God's word, but feel free to compl- to proclaim their own own thoughts. So we got the discussion of structure, the discussion of education. I'm right there with you, Philip Eck. Dewey, Dewey didn't do us any favors. But but then 
regardless of your structure, regardless of how you handle a thing, you have the thing that must be taught, the thing that itself must be imparted. And Peeper, he's saying this thing is God's word and not our word. And if you don't confine yourself to God's word, you're, you're well, you're you're not on the same team. Thoughts? Yeah, there's different voices that we hear, you know, all over the place, and we can go to different authorities. But when it comes to theology, the one who is the authority is God Himself. So, so people, I mean, this is, I mean, he's he's articulating beautifully our doctrine of sola scriptura, which is that that the voice that has authority in the Holy Christian Church is the voice of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hmm. So that the the text that has authority is the text. Uh, of the scriptures, the prophets and the apostles called uh, by uh, the Holy Spirit. So um, so there are no other voices. This is a limiting factor. Sola Scripture is a limiting factor uh, that says that the authority belongs uh, to God, which is a simple sort of thing. I mean, I, I suppose every church would agree the authority belongs to God. But then uh, the, the second assertion that Peeper's making, which is right and helpful, is that uh, God speaks in the Holy Scriptures. That's where we know. Uh, that's where he's put his voice, and that's where we know what he says. Philippic? And it's emphasizing sola scriptura as the objective truth, because everything that we just discussed preceding this, about subjective and objective, about beauty, about how education plays a factor in this, and, and order and structure, he actually states back on page 52 and 53, he says, this truth of sola scriptura needs to be stressed, in view of the contrary claims of modern theology. The moderns have nothing to offer but human doctrine. See, this is just it. It ends up at the end of the day, either you have the truth of God's Word, or you have this construct of man, and modern theology and the Enlightenment has reported this, which is what he's arguing against, that at the end of the day, everybody has to acknowledge that there is one truth. At the end of the time, Christ says this himself in Philippians, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. And that doesn't just mean Christians. Every knee shall bow. Everyone recognizes. Amen. We'll be right back. Cross the fence. Stick around. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Christ for you anytime, anywhere since 1924. Text the letters KFUO to 41444 to join the legacy with your tax-deductible gift. Concordia University, Wisconsin and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs, and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu. Proverbs 27:17 tells us, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. That's why weekday mornings at 8 a.m., two Missouri Synod pastors test their mettle against the Holy Scriptures, certain that not only will they come out better for it, but so will you. The sword of the Spirit is sharp to the touch, but you need practice wielding it. Check out Sharper Iron, 8 a.m., every weekday on Worldwide KFUO. Hi, this is Bart Day president and CEO of the Lutheran Church Extension Fund. For the last 39 years, LCEF has had the humble privilege of supporting the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. 
We recognize all of the individuals, churches, schools, and other organizations who serve to fulfill the mission of making the love of Christ known to our communities and the world. We look forward to another 39 years of partnership. Visit us at lcef.org to learn more. Jesus said, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Worldwide KFUO invites you to start and end your day with the Word of God and prayer with morning prayer at 9 a.m. and evening prayer at 5 p.m. The broadcasts of morning prayer and evening prayer are underwritten by Lutherans for Life. Weekdays on the Messenger of Good News, Worldwide KFUO. The Holy Scriptures are full of warnings, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that if you don't cling to God's Word and you're claiming to speak for Him, well, He's going to end up having something to say about that at a certain point. Looking at Francis Pieper's Christian Dogmatics, Volume 1, page 54, picking up with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller and Pastor Adam Filipek. I'm your host, Cross Defense, Pastor Jonathan Fisk. Dr. Pieper's going to give us a list of verses now to try to, I mean, he's is it a circular argument if you're arguing with an atheist? Yeah, I guess so. He's trying to prove Christianity from Christianity's own, you know, holy book. But if you're going to claim to be a Christian, then you got to go back to that holy book. He's trying to show that the holy book itself is the foundation of what we believe, teach, and confess. So listen to some of these words. Read the solemn words of Jeremiah 23. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. That is, they teach you vanity. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Lord. Now, he's not talking about real prophets. Prophets there. He's talking about the false prophets, so who, those who call themselves prophets. In like manner, the entire New Testament prescribes the teaching of human thoughts and opinions. That is, prescribes means to says no to it, says don't, forbids it, right? Uh, forbids human thoughts, human opinions, and enjoins all teachers to speak out of the mouth of the Lord. Whoever opens his mouth to teach in the church, which is 1 Timothy 3, the house of God should speak God's word, 1 Peter 4, 11. Whoever teaches otherwise, that is heterodidaskale, heterodoxy, right there in the Greek, to teach other, uh, and does not adhere to the wholesome words of our Lord Jesus Christ as we have them in the word of his apostles, John 8, compared with John 17, is unfit for the office of teaching in the Christian church. That's, that's pretty harsh right there. We're going to come back and hit that. For for in place of teaching the divine truth, such a one is <laughs> bloated with his own human opinion, and he knows nothing, but is sick with disputations and strifes about words. 1 Timothy 6. The Christians are therefore forbidden both by the Old and the New Testament to fellowship, that is to koinonia, common union, with those teachers who do not bring Christ's doctrine, that is God's doctrine. Because such teachers, by bringing in their own doctrine, quote-unquote, cause divisions and offenses in the church, rob the Christians of their Christian treasures, see 2 John 8, and do not perform the good work of a Christian teacher, 1 Timothy 3, 1, but are engaged in evil deeds, 2 John 11. Scripture thus declares in the strongest possible way that the doctrine proclaimed in the Christian church must be God's own doctrine, doctrina divina. I mean, there was a lot in there, guys, but, but I guess the piece... That maybe is the most hurtful to the present moment, the most unbelievable to the modern Christian, is that just because somebody wants to be a pastor or calls himself a pastor doesn't mean he's actually a pastor. <laughs> That's right. That's the doctor of the call. But it's not just the, how you get into the office, but it's what you do when you're in the office. Yeah. That, the, that the person who is called by Jesus 
is not called uh, to speak on their own, but rather called to speak what Jesus uh, sends them to speak. And and this has to do, you know, th- this is how Jesus will talk about himself. It's amazing to see Jesus over and over in the, if, just in the Gospel of John. It's half a dozen times Jesus says, the Father sent me and I say nothing on my own, but only what the Father has spoken. I, that's what I, I say. So even Jesus himself, God of God, very God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, even Jesus limits his own teaching and his own preaching to the things that he hears in the counsel of God and and makes that manifest on earth. And so if if that is the restriction for Jesus himself, then how much more so is it the restriction of those who are called by Jesus to, to bear his name before the world? Because the office of the holy ministry is nothing other than an extension of Christ's office into this world. It is his office. We, as pastors, are sent, just as the Father sent me in John chapter 20, the Father sent the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit for the, the giving of his life and the justification of the sinners, just as the Father has sent me, he speaks to his disciples in John 20, so I am sending you. And he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, they are withheld. The apostles themselves and the pastors are bound to this Christ to his word and what he says. And if you refuse to speak the word of Christ, then by, by virtue of that office, you are not in that office. Hence, there's all kinds of different things um, associated with removal of pastors who, um, who will not speak that word. But it all gathers around that same thing, that word. What is a pastor other than simply an instrument of God? I, the I, Lord speaks. I don't. I don't mean to be like a total picky nugget or anything, but but it it seems to me, as I as I pay attention to what passes for Christianity in America, what, what is preached out there as the thing we're to be after, and particularly what is taught as the thing for the job of the pastor, it's the very opposite of everything you guys just said. A pastor is sent into a community, at least the way the way I wasn't taught this quite at seminary, although a few of the books that I was supposed to read actually did teach this, and then I, I followed up on it and saw what else was out there. They had the words like purpose-driven in them and things like that. The pastor is supposed to go out into the community, and, and he, he comes as someone who does have the Bible with him, but his real job is to try to kind of lick his finger and put it in the air and test the wind in that community and find out what the truth of that community is. And he's supposed to preach that. He's supposed to meet that. He's supposed to find the wave of the current culture and ride that sort of in Jesus' name. And and, and with Jesus attached, I, I don't think they would actually say without the Bible, but it's certainly the Bible plus the, I would call this the prophetic insight of the pastor in the present age, that he's got to find where God God is working now, and <clears throat> that scares me, guys, because it's just it's just so different from what at least well what Dr. Pieper's getting at here. This verse in Jeremiah twenty three speaks directly against that kind of way of being a pastor. The the, the whole the uh, Pieper quotes verse sixteen, but the whole context is worth looking at. Uh, he's Jeremiah. The Lord is describing to Jeremiah the false prophets, and it says uh, they speak a vision of their own heart. Rather than the words that they hear from God. And and here's the defining mark of the false prophet. It says, they have not stood in the counsel of God. 
<laughs> and th- that's a real thing, the counsel of God. The old theologians used to talk about it a lot. It's a, it's a word, it's a phrase that we hardly hear anymore. But the idea is that there's a, converse, there's a, there's a heavenly conversation between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the, and the prophets and the apostles stand in the midst of that conversation. They hear what God is talking about with himself, with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what the conversation is. And then they come down and they make it known to man. So that when Isaiah stood in the council, they were talking about how Jesus was going to be born of a virgin. Or when Micah stood in the council of God, they were talking about how the birthplace of the Messiah would be Bethlehem. When, when Peter and James are brought into that council of heaven, there's God, Father and Son and Moses and Elijah standing there talking about the exodus of Jesus, that there's a real conversation between uh, the persons of the Trinity that's, that's made known by the true prophets, and that's what the scriptures are. When we read the scriptures, we're hearing the counsel of God. But the false teachers, because they don't have that, because they haven't stood there, because they haven't heard the voice of God, they've got to make up their own stuff, which is always wrong and also always worse. <laughs> you can never get as good uh, as the words that God himself speaks. I really like that word, heterodoxy, though. As Getting at what you're in there, heterodoxically is two words you know, to teach, to didoscale, to teach, and then to teach other. Right, so it's not even like it's. You think of heresy; it sounds like this mean old word, right? All those bad heretics. But heterodoxy, being kind of on the same playing ground, it just means something different. That's all it really means. Something just a little bit different. But when you put that next to with what you were just saying, that you have light and darkness. I mean, dark's just something different from light, you know. But but it's a big deal. Like it's it's a massive, massive change. And he got some of this other language where he and he's pulling this from the scriptures to call those who would teach darkness instead of light. Bloated with human opinions, sick with disputation, and sick is maybe too too easy there, right? It's like like ill with the need to dispute. That, that at the end of the day, the thing that is pushing us in this direction, and I don't call these people out as if I don't have this in my flesh as well, but the thing that's pushing us in this direction is our own self-idolatry, like you were saying earlier, Philippe, that, that we have a need for my own mind to rise above all other things. And so God's word comes along and it exposes me in ways I don't really like. And so I just start making up my own thing because I feel more comfortable and safe there. The, the danger, of course, is we're not safe there at all. We're, we're in great jeopardy. I don't mind the word heterodoxy there at all. I, I like it. But to relate it to the same sort of thing that you see, words that you see, in Scripture that Jesus is accused of and uses, it's blasphemy. Mm-hmm. And there's two different definitions. What Jesus is accused of in, in Mark chapter 2, say, when he says, I forgive you your sins to the paralytic, he's accused of blasphemy. Usually we, think of, we don't think of blasphemy in this way, um, speaking as God. That's one form of blasphemy. That's what Jesus is accused of, speaking as if you're God, when you're not, except that he, he is, and that's what the Pharisees don't understand. But blasphemy is either... Uh, the, the first, I would say, arguably, definition is speaking against God. I don't, I don't believe any of this stuff. It, it's all not true. But the Christian faith, it, to put it in computer terms, very interestingly, is very binary. You're either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. You are either baptized into him and believe in him or you don't. You're either alive or you are dead. But the, the reality is still the same. And it was in Jeremiah's day, too. There were so many people who said, oh, no, the, you're not going to go into exile. God loves you. Even though you're still practicing on idolatry, you're going to live long in the land. And Jeremiah has to look at them and say, well, you know what? Let's judge by what God does. If, if it, at the end of the day, he doesn't send you into Babylonian exile, then I guess your word is true. But if he does, then we know who the prophet is. And that the word that I'm speaking, that you're persecuting me for, 
is actually the truth of God's word. And it is. Jeremiah was right. The Lord was angry with them for their idolatry, and so he was adhering to the word of God. Brian? That's right. I mean, uh, it's it's uh, fantastic that um, th- that the false prophets, because they because they cannot speak what they heard from the counsel of God, uh, they can only speak lies. They're called empty words, but they're but they're lies. They're they're ag- they're against God because, as Jesus says, if you're not for me, you're against me. And so, false doctrine is always. Luther has this great phrase somewhere. At least someone told me Luther said this <laughs> that uh, every heresy strikes Christ. And if Luther didn't say it, he probably should have, because it's right that um, every false doctrine uh, is going to speak against the truth of the gospel, and it's gonna and it's gonna do damage to the sweetness of God's word. Which which is why Peter and the Lord's Church is always uh, so upset about false doctrine. It's not you know we don't you want to go out there looking for people who say wrong things just because we you know we 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 we're lovers of dispute or lovers of strife or because we want to somehow assert our own uh, intelligence or our own right or whatever no 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 the 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 concern that the church has for the truth is the concern that the church has for the gospel because if the truth of the voice of Jesus isn't heard then the thing that isn't heard is the forgiveness of sins and the hope that the Lord wants us to have and live with and die with Amen to that. It's not very often that you that you see Second John quoted as a proof text. So I'm I'm sitting here kind of uh, glancing at that one there to see what it says. Second John eight, right? And it's it's not the whole chapter. There's only one chapter, so it's just eight is verse eight of Second John. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. And then he points to Second John eleven as well that whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And if, well, okay, well, what is that about? You go a little further back here, and I'm not going to read the whole section. It's just a couple of verses here, but it's it's really kind of profound. Many deceivers have got out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves. Why? Because there's deceivers and antichrists out there. So what's the result if uh, you follow them? So is what you're just talking about, Wolf Mueller. So that you may not lose what we have worked for. What's the, what have we worked for? Well, not our salvation in the sense that we earned it, right? But we we sit here laboring, enduring, and patient, uh, waiting in faith for the forgiveness of sins, and it can be lost by being pointed somewhere else. So watch yourselves that you may not lose that, but win full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead, this is verse 9, and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that's the word doctrine in, in the Greek, it does not bring this doctrine. Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And this is where you get a couple of these stories from Polycarp uh, about uh, the, you know, the, the church father Polycarp and his unwillingness to even be in the same bathhouse as various heretics and whatnot because because he didn't want to take part in their wicked works. I mean, this is language, guys, that we just, we're just not even comfortable talking this way today. <laughs> No, that's right. I mean, uh, uh, who who are you to say that your opinion is uh, more right or better than my opinion? You know, we've re- we've reduced we've reduced truth and theology and doctrine down to opinion. So when you go and tell someone, hey, you know what you get in the altar on Sunday is the body and blood of Jesus, you you hear instantly, boom, oh, oh well, that's just your opinion, and that, that's always how it's um, uh, asserted. And and in some ways, if it all is opinion, it's right. I mean, one who can say that one opinion. Uh, should stand against another opinion, but we're not. The, the opinion has no place in the Lord's church. What we're talking about here is uh, is the words of God. It's not uh, it's not our opinions that matter. But if God tells us what His opinion about a thing is, then that does matter. Philip, 
which is why you should be absolutely and rightly are terrified from about 20 minutes ago, your comment about a pastor who comes in and just decides to ride the wave and put his finger in the air and determine truth because a pastor is bound to Christ and his word. He must speak what Christ speaks. So if you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold them, they are withheld. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always in this office, in this way, in the preaching and teaching of Christ's Word and the administration of the sacraments. Apart from that, apart from the forgiveness of sins, the cross, the resurrection, all of the, all of the sacraments there for us, where Christ has promised to be unbound, apart from those things where he has placed himself at, into that office in his presence, you have no certainty, and you have no hope outside of those things, Jonathan. You have only the words of man. The, you, you would think it would not be a problem to have the religion of God be God's religion, uh, founded on what God has actually said. It's amazing we even have to say this, but it, it shows you the kind of state our sinful condition puts us in. We'll be right back. Sharp Ryan. Cross events. You can't know where you're going unless you know where you've been. And it's even more critical when it comes to the history of God's redeeming grace in Christ. That's the conviction of Concordia Historical Institute, the Department of Archives and History of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. For almost 90 years, we've been dedicated to collecting, cataloging, and showcasing the historical touchstones of Christ's grace and mercy in the life of the Lutheran Church. Help us in the fight against historical amnesia by becoming a member of CHI today. Benefits of CHI membership include our quarterly journal, newsletter, and discounts when you use CHI's research and reference services. You also receive the joy of knowing you're doing your part in preserving and proclaiming Lutheran history for generations to come. Moving Lutheran history forward together. Check us out at ConcordiaHistoricalInstitute.org. ConcordiaHistoricalInstitute.org Rally Day for Worldwide KFUO is Thursday, November 9th. It's your chance to become a first-time day sponsor and support the worldwide ministry of KFUO. You'll hear about the benefits of becoming a day sponsor in the remaining days of 2017 and into 2018, as well as other giving opportunities. Listen on the Worldwide KFUO app, on your smartphones and tablets and pads, on AM850 in St. Louis, and online at kfuo.org. However you listen, listen on Rally Day, Thursday, November 9th. The Codex Sinaiticus is not only one of the most important books in the world, it's one of the oldest surviving copies of the Christian Bible, handwritten over 1,600 years ago. It's part of the rich history of the Bible presented by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., where you can actually see a facsimile of this unique codex. It contains about half of the Old Testament and the oldest complete copy of the Greek New Testament. Four institutions partnered together to preserve the entire original manuscript in digital form. It's a remarkable opportunity for scholars and lay people to access the manuscript, to read and study this remarkable book. It is one of the most read books in the world and the most impacting. Engage with this book of all books. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible, opening later this month in Washington, D.C. 
Bible is indeed what we're talking about here on Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO. Talking with Pastor Adam Philippek and Pastor Brian Wolfmuller about the scriptures, not just being a, a magic book, as many people kind of do treat it today, some sort of, you know, throw a throw a dart at it on the wall and see what the verse says to you, what kind of magic eight ball noise I can have, the, the future prophets give to me, that kind of thing. The Bible is indeed a testimony of what God thinks as a whole, to be taken as a whole and taken entirely seriously, especially, doubly so, if you happen to be one of those who are who are charged with preaching it, but then also doubly so if you're listening to a preacher. We're looking at Francis Pieper's Christian Dogmatics con- trying to convince us of this fact, call us back to this fact. Page 55, he's going to quote a little bit of Dr. Luther on this same matter. Here's what it says. He says, Luther upholds this demand of Scripture with might and main. That's kind of a cool phrase. Uh, With might and main. Recall his urgent words. Here he quotes him. O theologians, how are you going to escape here? Do you consider it a trifling matter when the supreme majesty forbids whatever does not proceed out of the mouth of the Lord and is something else than God's word? As quote, uh, speaking on that Jeremiah passage we were looking at in the, in the previous break. Back to, back to Dr. Pieper now. Feeling deeply about this matter, Luther stressed the necessity of God's doctrine in the church from various points of view. He points, for instance, to the difference between state and church and says that in, quote, the government of the world and the home— Human opinions and the word of man are in place, for this territory is ruled by natural light. Right, so so in your house or in the government, we do use reason to figure a whole lot a lot of stuff out, and that's fine. You know, you, you do it by the natural light that is by human reason. But teaching in the church is a different matter. Quote: If any man would preach, let him suppress his own words. <laughs> uh, yeah, easier said than done. Here in the church, he must utter nothing but the words of the rich head of the family. Otherwise, it is. Is not the true church. And therefore, it must be thus God is speaking. Luther expresses the same thought in somewhat paradoxical statement that the Christian doctrine does not belong in the Lord's prayers. Huh? What? The meaning is that, he says, it should not be necessary for the preacher to ask God's forgiveness for the doctrine he has preached. Oh, you know, that reminds me of something. I'm going to go off on a little tangent here on this one. So uh, there's, a, there's a nice little psalm verse that, that it's really beautiful. It says, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's at the end of was it, Psalm 19, I think. And and what what Peter's getting at here, what Luther's getting at here, I've heard pastors get up and right before they preach, that's what they say. May the meditation of my mouth or my heart and the and, and the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. Hopefully what I'm gonna say to you today is true. Right? And and Luther's saying, wrong, don't say that. Shut up, sit down, be quiet, please. I guess that'd be a nicer way to say it. If you can't get up and say, Thus saith the Lord. Don't get in a pulpit. Don't go off and speak for God. That, that You don't have the right to do that. There's no need to ask forgiveness for speaking God's word. It is God's word and not mine, is what you should say instead. Is back to uh, quoting Luther again here. So And so there can be no reason for his forgiving me. He can only confirm, praise, and crown what I have preached, saying, Thou hast taught correctly, for I have spoken through thee, and the word is mine. Luther adds the weighty words, quote, Whoever cannot truthfully say that of his sermon should quit preaching, for he must surely be lying and blaspheming God when he preaches. Oh my goodness, it's just terrible. I mean, it's not terrible, it's awesome, but it's like... It's like really insulting. And and I, 
I, I, I want to like caveat here in the sense that it's not like you should get up and say, well, I know that I'm always right, and so whatever I preach is therefore the word of God. No. With fear and trembling, the pastor should approach the preparation for the sermon so that when he gets up, he can say, I'm speaking what Scripture says and nothing other than that. So, I mean, golly, talk about words that are out of season in our present age, guys. What do you think? It's one of the reasons why it's so great to read Peepers and, and Luther and the Confessions is that it— it invigorates our boldness because yeah, they can amen. say things that we, you know, that we might be too timid to say. But it's right. If you, if I can't say, "Thus says the Lord," then what what are you ta- what are you doing? You know, I mean, just let the people go home and watch basketball or whatever. Murder the time. It's uh, because it's it's the Lord's voice that is to be heard in the church. I mean, this is the, the simple point all along. Jesus has established His church so that His sheep would hear His voice, not the voice of everybody else. I mean, who cares what I think about things? This is not, I mean, maybe you care, but that's not why you come to church <laughs> to hear what I think about things. You come to her, church to hear what Jesus thinks about things, about you. Uh, and the thing that he thinks is better than what I think about you because his thoughts are not my thoughts or our thoughts. His thoughts are thoughts of mercy and peace and forgiveness. I mean, you can't hear that in the mouth of a man. No, you're going to have, you're going to hear, I mean, I'm, I'm dwelling on that, that, you know, his thoughts are not my thoughts. What do I think about you? I mean, chances are, even if I really like you, I'm still probably thinking about how I can use you for my own benefit. That generally is the direction most of my thoughts go. And, and maybe you're better than me, you guys, but, but I pretty much see, see everything in life as being about me and trying to make a little bit better. Even the good things that I do, they're still dripping with this selfish dross. Why do I love my children and not your children? Because they're my children. <laughs> and and they reflect on me. And so if they look good, then I look good. Yay me, right? And God has such a different way of, of speaking and thinking and doing. And this is, the, this is the beauty. I mean, talk about opening the imagination again, that God doesn't love you because he's going to use you. This is People preach it this way, right? Why does God give us free will? Because he wants us to choose him so that he can feel good about himself and have a real happy relationship with us. I mean, it's just, it's just bogus. It's just a complete nonsense right there. God loves you strictly for you, for your sake, only to give. That's how good he is. It's just mind-boggling how good he is, that he just wants to give. And, and to have those words, as opposed to words that try to, like, rationalize God's love, right? I mean, it's just, it's just stunning, the difference between these things. It is true that the cross is folly, to those who are perishing, but to all who are being saved, Christ is the wisdom and the power of God. And you won't find anything wiser than that. I mean, how foolish is it to us? We love those who love us, and we hate those who hate us. But God shows his love for you in this, that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. While you were enemies of God, Christ shed his blood. And this is, this is the wisdom of God. And that man does not have this in and of themselves. We are far too sinful for this. And Luther grounds the pastor's work of, of preaching in the framework of God speaking. When the pastor preaches, God is speaking. Insofar as what the pastor says is, again, as he has emphasized and as people has emphasized, adherent to Christ and his word. This is a stumbling block, though, still for many who come into our own Lutheran churches, because they see a sinful man, and I always jokingly say it this way, but it's not a joke at all in many respects. They see, if they come into Holy Cross and Emmanuel, that sinful red-headed jerk of a man named Adam Phillips. <laughs> who is he to stand up there and forgive my sins? 
and we miss out entirely on what the office is and what Christ has given us in the gift of his word and sacrament. He has ascended to the Father's right hand, but he is present here in this office through these words. And so even the formation of what we say on Sunday morning, if you listen closely, I as a called and ordained servant of Christ, God called me to be here. He has placed me in this office, in this point in front of you, announce the grace of God to you. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying anything by my own authority. I'm announcing something. I'm announcing God's grace in the stead and by the command. I must be faithful to what God has said. If you confess your, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. You're a liar. There's no truth in you. But if you confess your sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive your sins. So here's what he has to say to you. And he uses me, the sinful letter jerk of a man, to simply say his words. I forgive you all your sins. And so when I speak, it's not me who speaks, but it is Christ who speaks through me as he breathed on those apostles in John 20, saying, "Forgive if you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold them, they are withheld. This is one of the many reasons why the the liturgy is such a important idea and, and why tinkering with it is a little bit dangerous. If you can, for a moment, kind of think to, no matter what your liturgical position is, just think to the last time you were in a hymnal book service, right? And the pastor's up there. If the pastor starts adding to that, he almost is guaranteed to be adding his own words, right? Hey, good morning, that kind of stuff, right? But from the moment that he starts saying what's written, you can, you not just can, you should literally remove the pastor. He's got the white robe on, cut off his head in your brain, right? And put Jesus' head there. And, and what's he doing? He's coming in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Every time he's facing you, he's speaking in Jesus' stead at that point. He's forgiving your sins in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's praying on your behalf the words of the Psalms. That's what Jesus does, right? Uh, he's reading the scriptures to you. Those are Jesus' words. He's declaring that the body and blood of Christ as a gift for you. All of this, put that as, as Jesus' work among you. Take the pastor away. The point of the of the robes is to show it's not him doing this work. And the liturgy, in many ways, is there to preserve this reality. I mean, I know, I mean, the few times that I, that I slip up and say something, I try to say as little as possible besides the liturgy. After we do, we do like a welcome or a greeting usually where I was a, a pastor. And that, that's all good. That's fine, right? But once you start, try to say as little as possible because I didn't want to get in the way. And every time I did say something or do say something, it was it was never the word of God. I didn't just like pull out, you know, Second Peter 3, 15 and just say it, right? It, it was It was always something personal. And so the liturgy is there to give us that scripture spoken to us in a way that, that drives us, of course, to the, the communion at the center. Maybe, maybe that's a bit of a, a distracted topic there, but uh, you got, either you guys got a response to that? Well, it's important, I mean, to think about it. In the context of this whole conversation, I mean, the reason why we have to be on such careful guard from, uh, for speaking from ourselves is because um, our mind... And our reason and our flesh and our understanding, it, it cannot get to the truth that God wants to give to us in the Scriptures. I mean, there's a reason why, God, why we know about God by revelation and not by reason or by nature. It's because the things that he wants to teach to us are, are not accessible to us unless he gives it to us. So the truth of the Lord's Word, uh, it belongs exclusively to God. And, um, and, you know, philosophers and wise men and scientists, they can discover some sorts of truths about humanity, some truths about nature, some truths about all, all, uh, all these sorts of things. But the truth about God 
is is uh, exclusively brought to us in in the scriptures, and so if, if we are if we are adding, um, if we're adding our own thoughts or our own words to the divine service or to the or to the sermon or to the teaching of God's word, if we're adding our own stuff, then it's not going to be revealing the truth of who God is. It's of a that th- the word of God is of a different sort than the word of man. And it is God's intention that it is His word that's heard in the in the church because it's it says different stuff. It says better stuff. It says more glorious stuff and more comforting stuff. It says stuff that actually saves. And so the words that need to be heard are are, are the words that Jesus speaks. Like Peter says, "You have the words of eternal life," and those are the words that we need to hear. I used to spend so much time my first couple of years as a pastor worrying about what I was going to preach. I would sit there and I would stew and I'd read the text carefully, but then I'd like try to figure out how do I how do I do it? How do I make this thing real? And I'd write it and I'd rewrite it and I'd every turn of phrase would be so important, yada yada. And finally, someone just said, "Why are you you know why are you so worried about it? Why don't you just let Paul preach?" And I was like, "Huh? Take what Paul said and say it." I was like, "Oh." Whoa! <laughs> like, that's not only so much easier, but the confidence that comes with that, the certainty that comes with that, that I don't need to come up with a story to make you figure out how the Bible really works. I can just trust its truth enough to repeat it. Now, I'm not saying verbatim to stand up there and read the Bible, but there, there's really something to that. There's a freedom to this. And this goes not just for the preacher preaching. This goes for the Christian confessing. This goes with the Christian believing, that we don't need to find little tricks and turns of phrases and, and magical little nuggets. Instead, we can rest on the certainty of what it clearly says and that what it says is real. It's true. It's it's effective in and of itself. I uh, just got about about three minutes here. Philippeck? That truth that is Christ alone and the revelation that Wolf Mueller was just talking about it is so vitally important. Um, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in my Lord Jesus Christ, nor, nor come to him. But it's also the scandal of Christianity, isn't it? Because, yes, every other religion talks about revelation. God revealed this to me. But we not only speak of revelation, we speak of inspiration as well. And so Christ himself revealed these things to us, these doctrines, who he is, what he has said in the fullness of time, when he was sent forth, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us who are under the law, that we might receive adoptions as sons. And here's the, here's the scandalous part. We receive adoptions as sons because he works through the hands of men. Hmm. It's not just simply popping ideas and thoughts in our brains. God uses how he created things and the people he created to give to us his salvation. It is his salvation alone. He accomplished it. And through that pastor then, through the mouth of a sinful man, um, Christ absolves. Christ baptizes. Christ teaches. Christ feeds his people with his own body and blood. I mean, it's just scandalous to think that this is not just some revelation, but that God actually deals with us in time through means. Wolf Mueller, we've got a minute left. You know, one of the worst, when people are angry at each other, one of the worst things they do is they give each other the silent treatment, you know? I've been known to do this before, and I see it all the time, and whenever you preach about it, you, you see everyone say, oh man, that's my family, you know? There's people that aren't talking to each other. What what Peeper is getting at here, this is so fantastic, is that when we study theology, we rejoice that God is not giving us the silent treatment. Hmm. He wants us to know what he thinks 
And he gives it to us in theology. He gives it to us in the mouths of the prophets, on the pens of the apostles, so that we know what he thinks about us. And his thoughts towards us are not thoughts of wrath and anger and uh, and vengeance. His thoughts towards us are full of grace. They're, 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 they're saturated with the blood of Christ. They are thoughts of peace and joy and salvation and the forgiveness of sins. This is why theology is such a fantastic joy, because the words that we hear from the very mouth and heart of God are words of salvation and peace and comfort, that God doesn't give us a silent treatment, and what he says to us is full is full of life that he loves us, and that he has a place for us before his face uh, in eternity. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller is pastor at Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. You also heard from Pastor Adam Filipek of Holy Cross Lutheran Church and oh, oh, <laughs> uh, Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both up there in Lidgewood, North Dakota. Regular guests here on Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fist. Scripture is true. Hold to it, my friends. We'll be back next Monday. Rock on. listening to Cross Defense, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314-996-1518, or you can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO.